0: Pick me up. I'm scared. The podcast. I'm your host, Madeline, and I'm your co-host, Kenna.
1: Okay, Kenna. Today, I want to ask you, what is your enneagram number?
0: Oh, we talked about this at work. Uh, <laughs> I am a a tragic four.
1: Right, and what's the four? The four is basically
0: like you are the tortured artist and no one understands you because you are so special. Um, You are creative, but you are possibly, you know, forlorn and have bouts of melancholia.
1: Yeah, everybody in the office is a four except for like three of us, right? I know.
0: Everyone at work's a four.
1: (laughs) Uh, I'm an eight. I
0: know, lucky.
1: I don't know about that. I'm an eight wing seven mm. to be more specific. Do you know your wing? I think I'm a wing
0: five.
1: Oh, Would, what does that do?
0: Uh, I think five is like, it's like um, you're a researcher or you're like in a, a st- you're a studious researcher. So, or you're like an eccentric. Oh, so, okay. I like uh, that. So I think like a smarty eccentric. That's cool. Um, Which I don't think I am, but I am probably. A, I I like to read. to think that I read? But I am not smart. <laughs> I think you're smart.
1: Oh I think you. Um. Yeah. Mine. Mine has like a name. Like if you're the eight wing seven, you're called the challenger. Just mm. d- yeah. I don't know if yours has a name, but um. So the explanation basically says uh that like I'm a bitch and I don't like anyone telling me what to do. But also, I don't like anyone telling anyone else what to do either. And because I'm a bitch, I'll fight you if I see you trying to control me or someone else. You bully the bullies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and also that I'm practical, logical, and fair.
0: <laughs>
1: okay, okay. So what is your Myers-Briggs thing?
0: Oh, my God. I keep forgetting. It's I think it's INFP or INTP. Yeah. Yeah. Um, basically i'm introverted and i don't remember i think it was like the i don't remember i just remember that i'm introverted and i'm also a
1: spacey little artist oh well that's on um brand if you don't remember then
0: you're like that's just me i do remember taking it one time and they're like you are the rarest oh so yeah all these stupid (laughs) personality test telling me I'm special, making me feel terrible.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, mine is the ENTJ and it basically says that I'm a bitch and I strive for success, (laughs) but I also want everyone around me to succeed too, right along with me. And I'm really an asshole in negotiation situations, like buying a car. And that (laughs) checks out because I once brought my boyfriend along with me when I was trying to buy a used car and I negotiated for like 12 hours straight. And by the end of it, my boyfriend was like almost crying and he looked at me at one point and was like, what the fuck is happening? And I was like, sure, almost through it. Um, and you know, I got my sweet, sweet used Kia talked down from a 21 K list price to the 18 K Kelly blue book, and then down to a 13 K out the door purchase price. Whoa. So worth it, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So then what about like the types, you know, like your type A, type B, type C, type D? What oh. about those? Do you know what you are for I those? don't.
0: I don't know what those are. I'm definitely not
1: type A. Right. I think type B is like, I don't remember. I think type B is like you're more passive, but like one of them's you're more like creative, I think. And one of them you're more controlling. I don't know.
0: I definitely am not type A because I, it stresses me out. And I'm not confrontational and I, in my mind, I just want to go with the flow.
1: Okay. I think that might be a type B.
0: Um, I just want to go with the flow and I want to everyone else to do what they want. But sometimes that means I don't say what I want, which is a bummer, but I'm working on it.
1: Yeah. Well, I am a type A, (laughs) 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 which basically means uh, that I'm a bitch, um, but I'm super productive and I work a lot. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Every time you say I'm a bitch, I think
0: of the Meredith Brooks song. I'm so sorry. Oh, that's me.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a bitch. I'm a lover. I'm a child. Yeah. That's me. I'm Meredith slaps. Brooks. Yeah. Uh, okay. And if you were a Kardashian, which Kardashian would oh, you be? I'm
0: Kim. I took the test. Um, I'm Kim because I cry a lot. Oh, does she cry a lot?
1: Yeah. Oh. Uh. Well, I'm Kris Jenner. And- <laughs> i don't know anything about the kardashians so all i know is that kris jenner is the mom so i imagine that means that i'm like a bitch and a stage mom or something yeah
0: i do okay in my mind i think um kim is actually the most
1: creative she's pretty creative right i don't know anything about yeah i think all these things
0: yeah i think that she has like a naturally good eye and i like that she used to be paris hilton's like best friend who organized her closet or maybe not best friend. Intern. Yeah. Her intern. And then she was like, you know what? I'm just going to do me. And I don't know she turned that whole like leaked tape information into something cool for her, which I'm like, good for you. You're creative.
1: Yeah, that is creative. The only exposure I have to any of the Kardashians, aside from seeing like photo memes, is that I watched that Paris Hilton cooking show on Netflix and she has Kim Kardashian come on it. Really? Yeah. And it's, it's cute. They like cook together. And what I I got from it is I'm like, oh, Kim Kardashian's like, domestic. Like she's like, I know how to cook and use utensils in the kitchen. And Paris Hilton's like, what's that? It's burning, you know, and I was like, Oh, this is interesting. And that also Kim Kardashian was not as tall as I expected.
0: Yeah, I like okay, I like that. Like, okay, I feel maybe some affinity. I don't know, obviously don't know them personally, who knows what's in a person's heart. But I like that she like, came up through being like a closet organizer. Like that seems like, like- a
1: rich closet organizer. Like a
0: rich <laughs> closet organizer, but I like the hustle. Cause I think it's like same as like doing the flea markets. Cause you just like kind of wiggle your way around. And like, she's like, I'm into clothing. I'm gonna figure
1: out a way to get in there. I do like that politically there's something to be sad for all those arguments where people are like, if everyone makes the same amount of money or if nobody makes money, why would anybody work? And then you're like, rich people work for fun all the time. And she is a great example of Dude, that. She she's has hustle. Get, she is drive.
0: She's getting her like law
1: degree. Right. She was born rich. She didn't have to work. And yet look at her.
0: Yeah. that That is funny to me.
1: So it politically serves me in a rhetorical capacity. I <laughs> would say
0: there is a part of me that was like, if I were rich, I would just get some second career. I'd be like, fuck it. I'm being a lawyer slash architect slash uh, a psychiatrist or something.
1: I love like the parallel universe where Kenna is like just a rich kid architect. I think you've designed some really cool stuff.
0: Uh, you know, maybe like that book where they show all the houses that are all the buildings in Las Vegas that are shaped like different animals, like a duck or a whale or a shoe. Is that real? Yes. Oh. I forget what the book is called.
1: That sounds But it's cool. like a famous
0: book where like they show all the houses that look like
1: other things. Well, you know, there's probably a personality test online you can take that tells you what career you should have had. Oh, damn. Um, But yeah, so obviously today I want to talk about personality tests, <laughs> uh, which I know you kind of have been wanting to do an episode on for a while. Mm-hmm. So I really hope I do this topic justice. Um, but you know, every personality test I take, yeah, just tells me I'm an asshole, basically. Um,
0: mine just is like, oh, you poor you poor tortured little little weirdo. I love that. I'm just I'm the tortured little weirdo.
1: So do you know much about like the history of personality tests? Um I don't
0: know the general history. I think I feel like I do know a little bit about the Myers Briggs. It was like a mother daughter situation, but I feel like other than that, personality tests, I don't know, maybe they've been around for forever. I think about shit too, like astrology or something like that.
1: Right. So personality tests, way back in like 460 BC, Hippocrates was born, right? And he was like the ancient Greek physician and probably someone we know of most because he's considered the father of medicine by lots of Western schools of thought. And because he developed the Hippocratic Oath, which is still used Uh, By doctors in the US today, right? So it basically just says that doctors have certain responsibilities and duties, and the first of which is famously do no harm. Mm -hmm. So Hippocrates did a bunch of stuff in his life, and a lot of that involved philosophizing about the human experience from medicine to like spirit and soul. He even established the first intellectual school in the West dedicated just to the teaching practice of medicine. Where in the past, medicine had been a very like superstitious and faith based thing, and many communities around ancient Greece at the time, Hippocrates tried to take medicine in a new, more rational and scientific direction. But obviously, it was like 400 BC, right? And there wasn't like a lot of medical technology. So my guy was out here just doing the best he could. (laughs) And one of the things lots of people kind of think he came up with was that thing about the four humors. Do you remember this? Okay so the four humors are literally just bodily fluids which that are- we're made up of. Yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> he's like poo poo, pee pee sorry. <laughs> you know Basically. <laughs> you're close. You're close. We've got yellow bile. Cool. We've got black bile. Ooh. We've got blood. Cool. And we got phlegm. Yeah. So each humor was associated with a particular element, so like earth, water, air or fire two qualities, like cold, hot, moist, or dry, certain bodily organs, and then also certain like ages or life stages, childhood, adolescence, maturity, and old age. And he said that the way these humors, qualities, organs, and ages all work together was in conjunction with the seasons and the location of the planets. And all of that together determined basically everything about a person from their physical health to their mental health, including their disposition and personality. Hmm. And as absolutely wacky and pseudoscience-y as this is, we still use some of these notions in our language today, like catching a cold or having a dry sense of humor.
0: Interesting.
1: Right? So for example, if you were sick and showing an excess of yellow bile, you were considered a hot and dry person who was associated with fire and summer and had medical issues relating to your gallbladder and some sort of mental health issue relating to childhood. So you would have been called um, a choleric disposition. That would have been how you were categorized. Oh, for... this,
0: sound, this sounds like some goop shit.
1: Yeah, kind of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hippocrates, goop, <laughs> the collab you've been waiting for. Yes. So, okay, if you had an issue with phlegm, for example, you are a cold and moist person associated with water and the season of fall and you had medical issues relating to the brain and mental health issues relating to the idea of maturity. Oh, so that's me. No. I'm really relating to this one too, actually. I know, I'm like, ooh. Yeah, that's... so we would have been considered of the phlegmatic disposition. Ooh, yeah. That would have been our personality type. Um, black bile was related to being cold and dry, and it made you a person of the earth and winter and conveyed some sort of medical issue pertaining to your spleen and mental health issues relating to old age. And uh, they would have said that you had a melancholic disposition.
0: Oh, I'm also feeling that one as well. Yeah, that's the
1: best name for sure. And last, if the issue was blood related, you had the qualities of being hot and moist, and you were best represented with the element of air and were a spring person with medical issues pertaining to your heart and mental health issues relating to your adolescence. And they would have said you were of a sanguine disposition Ooh, or sanguine I'll... the blood one what, how do you Ooh, pronounce it how I don't know brain?
0: it's one of those words you hear you see uh in books a lot and you're like never hear someone say it
1: yeah there's not really a reason this is the first time in my life to said that word I think <laughs> sanguine if that sounds like sanguine equine it sounds horsey sanguine whatever we'll it is. figure it out later that's the only time we say it in a whole episode so I think we are okay uh so you could have one of these four temperaments oh man I wrote it again S- sanguine whatever it is choleric melancholic or phlegmatic And the general idea is that if you wanted to keep all of these humors in balance, um, then you would be healthier because if you had too much or too little of any of them, boom, disease, right? So Hippocrates was like, yeah, you got to regulate all these things. And the best way to do it is with food, which, you know, I like eating. That sounds great. But if that didn't work, you know, you could also drain the humors, too. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. No, this is where it gets real weird. Kind of saw territory. Um, and that's how we ended up with the absolutely terrifying and now thankfully gone uh, medically inaccurate practice of bloodletting. Mm. Which is where a doctor would actually cut open a vein and let blood drain out to restore balance to your humors.
0: Ooh, I, I can't stand the sight of blood anymore, man.
1: Oh, that actually, when I was researching this episode, was a question they asked on a uh, personality test.
0: Oh, which Kardashian does that make me now?
1: (laughs) Maybe still Kim. I feel like Kim can handle the side of blood from what I know about her. Mm Hmm. We shall yeah, something to research. Maybe we can email her team. Okay, so now even though this was clearly not actually scientific, it was still somehow more scientific than what people had been doing at the time. And it was seen as a step in, In the right direction uh, of like Western culture medicine progress. And many of Hippocrates' teachings were compiled into this text called the Hippocratic Corpus, which was used by medical professionals like well into the 1800s. Whoa. Yeah. Now, while this was considered medical, we can definitely see some signs of personality testing in there too, right? Like you're a dry person, you're a fiery person, you're a cold, wintry person. And people kind of trucked along with this understanding of the mind and body being connected not only to each other but to the elements and to the seasons for a really long time. In the 1600s though, the French philosopher, René Descartes was like, hmm, what if the mind and the body are two totally different things that interact to form the human experience? And he called that dualism. However, not everyone was fully on board with this yet, and we had lots of other weird pseudoscience pop-up around the era, linking our personalities and dispositions to our physical bodies. And one popular example of this was phrenology. Oh, I know this one. It's your head shape. Yes. It was created by Franz Joseph Gall in the late 1700s, and it measured people's skulls in an effort to tell us, like, something about them. But as you can imagine, phrenology was mostly just used to justify racism.
0: I was going to say that is also where the term highbrow and lowbrow comes in.
1: Whoa, I didn't know that. Yeah.
0: Wow, that's... Because if you had a highbrow, you were smarter than if you had a lowbrow.
1: Yeah. Well, okay. isn't that crazy? I just learned that. That is very wild. I did not know that. Um, Unfortunately, it kind of checks out though, because yeah, he basically created this whole thing just to say that people uh, who weren't white were inferior beings and we shouldn't feel bad about doing fucked up shit to them. God. I know. Shocking, uh, but not shocking. It's one of the things where you're like, I know it's horrifying, but not shocking. I guess.
0: How come like every single thing we research, it's like, it's just like,
1: Oh, racism. (laughs) It's all racism and eugenics. Everything is racism and eugenics. Yeah. Then in the 1870s, German psychologist Wilhelm Wundt formally was like, yeah, that humor stuff, that's not right. Your mind and your body, they don't operate as one. And then he kind of separated the idea of your personality from your body's overall physical health in terms of things like disease in a more medical and less philosophical capacity than, you know, Rene Descartes had. So Wundt comes along and kind of does for psychology in the West what Hippocrates had done for medicine in the West. He separates psychology not only from the idea of humors in your body, but also from philosophy by analyzing the mind in a more structured way. And he ends up opening like a whole school for this called the Institute for Experimental Psychology at the University of Leipzig. And a bunch of German, American and British students come to learn from him. One's work, though, focused mainly on, like, thoughts, images, and feelings within the mind, not necessarily in grouping people into personality types based on how they related to the world. And in that way, his research was more scientific, even though it wasn't the level of scientific we think of today. He was interested in conducting research in carefully controlled situations. But his processes themselves were, like, not what we would think of as being, like, a proper laboratory experiment because he used this thing called introspection, which was just kind of having people analyze their own thoughts and feelings, which is obviously super subjective, because we can be unreliable narrators of our own bodies, brains, and experiences. But whatever the case, this kind of launched what we think of as psychology today, and over the next few decades, psychiatry continued to grow. So now we're fast forwarding, I guess, maybe 50 years or so, and it's 1915, and World War I is going on. So we've got this doctor, Charles Myers, who's working with the Royal Army Medical Corps, and he is documenting something going on with a soldier, whom he refers to as Case 3. Case 3 was a 23-year-old private who had survived a shell explosion and woken up with a cloudy memory, first in a cellar, then later again at a hospital. Case 3 seemed physically fine, very healthy. However, he was noticeably shaken and in what Myers called an extremely nervous condition. Myers documented that the slightest noise would make Case 3 jump. Myers found the same condition in two other soldiers at the time, and he called it shell shock. This new condition, shell shock, ended up sending 15% of otherwise healthy British soldiers home from the war, discharged, and the symptoms included things like uncontrollable weeping, amnesia, tics, paralysis, nightmares, insomnia, heart palpitations, anxiety attacks, and muteness, amongst other things. Uh, And as somebody who experienced PTSD, this list sounded pretty familiar to me. And what Myers was describing were the first understandings of post-traumatic stress disorder, which is still to this day an ongoing psychological response to trauma that the Department of Veteran Affairs here in the US says affects between 10 to 20% of veterans today. And of course we know now that PTSD can be a response to many different types of trauma, not just war. Uh, I personally was diagnosed with PTSD after the sudden death of a loved one. And much like the shell shock symptoms that Myers was describing, even a very loud noise would cause me to fall to the ground suddenly and weep uncontrollably. While early doctors had suspected shell shock was a physical reaction in the brain to like bombs dropping and everything rattling around, even non-combat troops started to display these same symptoms. And it became apparent that it was a psychological response to like the horrors of war more than a physical technical one. So in the U.S., psychiatrist Thomas salmon or salmon, it's spelled like the fish, Mm. studied these effects and what he called them was war neuroses. And he concluded that what the US really needed to do was figure out a way to pre-sort these types of people who would be predisposed to experiencing shell shock to kind of like weed them out of the army before they even got in, right? Because they were wasting all these resources and time training these men only to have them end up psychologically completely broken. So the military wasn't too kind about this. It's not like they were like trying to protect people. They called these enlistees girl-like with weak constitutions, (laughs) right? So thus the first formal personality test was born in 1917 with the expressed goal of figuring out who these weaklings were. In July of 1918, a telegram to the war department said, prevalence of mental disorders in replacement troops recently received suggests urgent importance of intensive efforts in eliminating mentally unfit from organizations new draft prior to departure from the United States. It is doubtful whether the War Department can in any other way, more importantly, assist to lessen the difficulty felt by General Pershing than by properly providing for initial psychological examinations of every drafted man as soon as he enters camp. So basically, this telegram's like, yeah, um, we killed a bunch of people. Uh, We sent some home broken. And then you sent us more guys to replace them. And these ones are broken, too. So the best thing you can do is test these guys first before you send them out here because they're all losing their minds. And of course, nobody was like, wow, it's almost like war is horrific and nobody should have to endure it. They're like, send these sissies home, (laughs) you know? Oh my God. I know, really fucked up, fucked up, fucked up situation. So whatever the case The US military created neuropsychiatry and psychology divisions, and even established a school of military psychology with the medical officers training camps in Georgia. And they started administering tests screening for the type of men who they thought would be susceptible to what we now know as PTSD. Less than two years after the United States entered World War I, around 1.7 million would-be soldiers had received what the military referred to as a psychological evaluation. Although in reality, it was more like what we think of as a personality test today. These tests excluded roughly 2% of people from joining the military who took them. One popular personality test for military enlistees was this one created by Robert Sessions Woodworth at the behest of the American Psychological Association. This test was called the Woodworth Personal Data Sheet and included questions like, did you ever think you had lost your manhood? Can you sit still without fidgeting? Do you like outdoor life? Uh, I do love that they refer to going to a war zone as outdoor life. That was pretty interesting to me. While um, what they called a normal recruit would probably score around 10 points on this test, people who had been diagnosed as hysteric or shell-shocked would commonly score more like 30 or 40. And I actually found this test online and took it just for fun. Uh, And I did indeed score 31 on it indicating a predisposition towards what they would call neuroticism, which, you know, checks out. Uh, I actually did get PTSD. So I'm actually not mad at myself personally. That test is pretty accurate for me. That's fine. Uh, however, perhaps more interesting is the fact that every year, the average results on this test change dramatically, like with the population. So in, you know, 1917, the typical recruit would have scored around 10 points. By 1930, the average test taker scored around 19 points, hmm. and by today, the average test taker scores around 36. Wow, it's like it's like life is getting more and more stressful. Yeah, well, it could indicate a few things, right? It could indicate test taker bias. It could indicate um, a great a greater sense of us now being in tune with our true selves, mm. or being willing to acknowledge um, that yes, the average level of mental instability in the general population has increased over time, even in ourselves. Or it could mean that these tests simply reflect pop psychology of the era and they're they're not actually able to say much about the human condition at all. Yeah. So following the popularity of the Woodworth personal data sheet, other personality testing and theories started springing up all over the place. So in 1919, we had this thing called the XO test for investigating the emotions, which sought to find maladaptive aspects of personality, which are described as involving emotional instability and lack of emotional control. So that was just, two years after the first personality test entered the game. Then two years after that, in 1921, we had the Rorschach inkblot test where you famously look at inkblots and whatever image you see tells you something about your overall condition. And, and where many personality tests are considered self report inventories, the Rorschach test is different. It's uh, considered a projective test, which I just thought was interesting. Have you ever taken an inkblot test? Uh,
0: no, but probably the only thing I would see would be bats. Oh, and that's butterflies. cute. Oh, I like that. Oh, it's like bat, butterfly, bird, bat, butterfly. Just
1: bird. lots of wings. Yeah. that's like all. that. That's all that they, those are. Yeah. So, also in 1921, we had Carl Jung publish the book Psychological Types, which was based solely off of his perceptions of people around him. And this stated that humans roughly fall into two main types of people perceivers and judgers. And then, both of those two types can be subdivided into two other types sensing and intuiting, or thinking and feeling, for four personality types total. Then in 1923, Sigmund Freud developed his own personality theory, which saw the psyche is divided into three parts, the id, the ego, and the superego. And they all develop at different stages in our life, at different levels of consciousness, pre-consciousness, and subconsciousness. So different levels of awareness. Then in 1925, we had the Colgate tests of emotional outlet, which used um, clinical sounding terms like Psychosynthenoid, neurasthenoid, and histrioid. I probably pronounced all those wrongs, but whatever. They they weren't real and they were used to categorize people. In 1927, we had the mental hygiene inventory, which was used to determine whether psychoneuroticism could um, aid in the selection of careers for nurses. In 1930, we had the Thurstone personality schedule, which was used to investigate the adjustment difficulties of women teachers and concluded that one third of women teachers are definitely maladjusted. Uh, I don't know why that one was just really funny to me. <laughs> In 1931, we had the burn router personality inventory, which was a bit different than previous tests because it had a more complex model of potential results and it evaluated not only neurotic tendency, but also things like self-sufficiency, introversion or extroversion, and dominance or submission. Uh, I actually liked this one because I already know how I would score. I would be highly neurotic, highly self-sufficient, highly extroverted, and highly dominant. Uh, So in other words, an unstable, nervous bitch who gets things done and fuck you if you say otherwise, right? (laughs) Then in 1934 we had the Hum Wadsworth Temperament Scale, Ooh. yeah, which was actually developed specifically as an entrepreneurial effort with the goal of just making money. So they were like, "Yeah, we're selling these tests at 25 cents a pop." It assessed uh, personality on seven dimensions, including histrionic, manic, depressive, autistic, paranoid, epileptoid, and self mastery, by asking questions like, "Do you like to go on blind dates?" Do you think traffic policemen have the right attitude towards motorists? And do you like movie heroes?
0: Wow. Yes. Okay, I think that just says so much about a person. Right, do you like movie heroes?
1: Do you think traffic (laughs) cops are assholes? Do you like blind dates? Yeah, so these just go on and on. Like in 1938, we had something called the Bell Adjustment Inventory. In 1940, we had the Guilford Martin Personality Inventory of Factors. And then in 1940, also we had the DISC personality profile, which is designed to measure dominance, influence, steadiness, and conscientiousness. Have you heard of this one? No. The DISC one, I think ended up being pretty big because I feel like a lot of like corporate America really likes this test. Then in 1943, we had something called the Nebraska personality inventory. Also this 1943 was a big year for personality tests. Let me tell you. We also had the Minnesota Multiphasic personality inventory which is sometimes abbreviated to the MMPI. And that was developed with the intention of determining clinical levels of schizophrenia, psychopathic deviance, hysteria, and paranoia. And also in 1943, the famous Myers-Briggs type indicator came out, made not by psychologists, but instead by a novelist, Isabel Briggs, who wrote extremely racist eugenics propaganda books in which whole white families committed suicide one by one after learning that they had, and this is a quote and the words are not great, negro blood yeah running through their veins um even in like the 30s and 40s though her weird creepy eugenics books were too like off base for the mainstream population And i feel like people were probably super super racist back then and they were like this is too racist and like nobody liked her books so she was just this like failed writer and she was really struggling to find work and her mom katherine briggs had been super interested in carl young so This chick now was like, okay, well, I'm gonna try to like solve the labor problem of like people in their jobs because she was so struggling to find a job, but uh, it was just because she was a creepy racist eugenicist, but whatever. So she and her mom together came up with the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator Personality Test, or which we sometimes call the MBTI today. Then in 1949, we had the 16 Personality Factor Questionnaire, which was designed to measure 16 personality traits uh, thought to span the spectrum of personality traits identified with factor analytic methodology. There's a lot of very like official sounding words. In yeah, her, right? probably
0: like, it's like when foundations are like the freedom, liberty, America foundation.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's like when we uh renamed French fries, freedom fries after like 9-11, like the words don't mean anything. We just say them. Uh, Anyway, so then in 1949, uh, that same year, we had the Guilford Zimmerman Temperament Survey. And then in 1959, we had the Maudsley Personality Inventory. And then uh, through the 1960s and 70s, we had the modern version of the Enneagram personality type emerging. And this one is kind of my favorite because it's kind of goth. Um, So it gives you nine personality type topics theorized by a South American occultist named Oscar Ichazo, who liked to get into hallucinogenic trances by taking mescaline and ayahuasca. So Ichazo said that the archangel Metatron came to him in a trance and told him there were nine different types of people. And then he mapped them on an ancient symbol, the Enneagram. And then later his followers developed this test you could take to figure out which one you were. And personality testing after this kind of dipped down for a bit, like for a few decades. But then in the 1980s and 90s, it had this huge resurgence and many personality test developers started to agree upon this thing called the big 5 taxonomy for testing which included the traits of openness to experience conscientiousness extraversion neuroticism and agreeableness mm. yeah so we start to like see that there's this huge trend to so just jump on this bandwagon and make a personality test right but what were people really using them for so Today, we tend to use these tests in a couple of ways. Like the first is that recreational, fun, low stakes kind of way. Like who hasn't taken a BuzzFeed quiz to see what type of bread you are, right? Um, I probably would be sourdough. Oh, I see that for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would be that buttermilk bread, like the country market brand. You know that bread? I love that bread. I miss that bread. Uh, But there's also a more high stakes way in which these tests are often used, which is the workplace.
0: I know. From like job hunting, where you're like, "What?
1: Wait, have you applied for jobs where they
0: ask you to take these tests?" Out when I was outside of college, yes, I remember really? doing that. Yeah, wow. I, I mean, never- also they would ask you questions, or like, "Would you steal office supplies from your employer, even if it was just a pen?" And you're like, "No," <laughs> when you're really just like,
1: "Yeah, who's going to answer yes yeah. on that?" Like very clearly, I will steal things from this place of business, but, but I will not tell you that that's what stealing is. I don't tell you. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just like, why? Um, Well, that's amazing to me because I've never had to do a personality test to get a job.
0: Well, I feel like it was stuff like, um, you know, if you're having a bad day, do you still smile? Oh. And a little but you know, my brain is like, well, probably, but also like, I'm just gonna answer yes, because I think that's what you want me to say. Yeah. They're like, I, ha- I work job. I have no feelings.
1: No, I am just here to labor for you. I am corporate overlord. I am a robot. Yes. Well okay so do you remember that woodworth personal data sheet that we used in the war the one that asked you things like has have you ever felt your manhood taken from you or something like that, that one? I have not felt that okay well that test that they used on the soldiers to be like which of these sissies are going to be completely traumatized by the horrifying effects of war that guy In 1924, he was like, wait, I think there's other uses for this test and uh, translation, other ways I can make money. So in 1924, he adopted this test to be used in the industrial capacity rather than a military one. And managers in workplaces became obsessed with this test and other personality tests, using them as a way to root out potentially undesirable workers from the workplace. So there's this one researcher, Zikars, And he wrote a lot about this. And he said that managers believed, quote, that people who advocated for labor unions were people who were unsettled and neurotic themselves, end quote. So they administered these early personality tests to try to like stave off labor unrest. Um, I liked that quote though, because I like labor unions and I am neurotic, yes. (laughs) A lot of these personality tests seem like they're reading me, but like in a fun way, you know. I'm like, yeah,
0: I hate them all. I get the worst ones. Well no, there's no objectively worse ones. I just I why do I have to be so tortured?
1: Um you know, there are ones though that they created specifically with the idea that they are awful. So we'll get into that later. <laughs> So all of this is like kind of consistent with popular management theories at the time, like those advocated by Harvard Business School professor Elton Mayo, which is, you can't make that name off, in the 1920s and 1930s. Mayo believed that problems at work were most often due to mental disintegration and maladjustment, and that maladjusted workers could cause problems by lowering work morale, uh, fomenting, workplace violence and agitating for unions. I like this idea
0: that it's just a couple bad apples that are spoiling the bunch instead of the barrel full of
1: apples being made of shit. Yes, yeah, exactly. So one psychologist estimated that 80% of all problem employees had what they called a quirk or unusual feature in their personality, uh, like wanting to get paid or something like that is my guess. And management in the 1920s and 30s widely believed that properly administrating personality tests prior to selecting who to hire would increase productivity for the company overall and reduce workplace radicalism. You know, those pesky employees fighting for their rights. And instead of acknowledging the class struggle intrinsic in all workplace dynamics, psychologist Lawrence Schaefer in 1936 wrote that, Such maladjusted persons are often over-dependent and expecting from their superiors in business the same loving consideration that they received from their parents. They're thwarted and emotionally upset when they fail to receive it. Uh, Which basically just implies that some people were just broken and that's why they wanted their employers to treat them with dignity and respect.
0: Yeah, it's so, you know, it's so wild when people wanna just be treated like human beings.
1: Right? Um, It's just I love that they're doing like all of these mental acrobatics to be like, oh, no, why are the workers mad? And you're like, oh, because you're exploiting their labor and they can't afford to live. And they're like, I think they're maladjusted and want me to be their mommy. And you're like, literally, nobody said that. Nobody said that. Or
0: yeah, or they want me to um, punish them.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, Yeah, they want that. That's kind of the parental. That's an interesting one.
0: Yeah. I don't know why people are just like, if I just punish people more, they'll like it and they'll be good.
1: Yeah. Well, okay. So another thing that was happening that I thought was really interesting around this time, like in the twenties and thirties is the red scare was like active. Right. So the U S capitalist sector was very like communism bad. And uh, obviously communism is when the workers own the means of production. So this was like very much like keep the workers at you know, obey. They're trying to come here and bring their communism here and take over too. So the U.S. capitalist sector was like terrified of its employees at the time. Mm. Uh, and during the post-war era, they were militantly unionizing, inspired by the labor revolutions happening in Russia. And some groups were aggressively confronting management using a variety of techniques like strikes, propaganda, and industrial sabotage. And then there were even like less radical unions that popped up, inspired by the American Federation of Labor and its president, Samuel Gompers, which encouraged dialogue between workers and management first, then aggressive action second, angry over things like working conditions, workplace safety and wages, which are all very legitimate concerns. Management of the 1920s and 1930s was under siege from assertive workers who were willing to take control of their workplace and things like personality testing and industrial psychiatry were seen as management's tool of defense against even encountering these types of workers who would know their rights demand more rights and stand up for themselves if they didn't get it. Um, I personally thought that that was really like inspiring hearing that though, that it's like, wow, the workers had the management running scared. Yeah. But for those pesky workers that personality tests couldn't suss out, industrial psychiatry became like its own field to deal with them, which is just psychiatry in the workplace. And it kind of became like a little micro industry all on its own, influenced by Sigmund Freud's psychodynamic school of theory. And rather than working to try to like heal trauma and care for people, this school of psychiatry attempted to just solve workplace issues with personal counseling. Industrial psychiatrists used role-playing and psychodrama as well as group sessions, including uh, management being able to discuss work-related problems with employees. Oh my gosh,
0: this reminds me of this Adam Curtis documentary called Century of the Self, which is about Freud's nephew who used Freudian psychology to invent PR. Public relations, Whoa. yes.
1: That makes sense to me, because PR is kind of like like you're trying to force a groupthink on the world, right?
0: Yeah, uh, his first um, PR campaign was to get women to smoke, so using Freudian psychology, he was like, I am going to, during, I think it was like the Macy's Thanksgiving parade, he's like, I'm going to get a bunch of flapper, feminist-looking women to be like we're free and to walk out in the street smoking cigarettes wow yeah
1: very interesting yeah uh yeah by 1954 there were 25 psychiatrists in the u.s who operated in industrial psychology alone like that was their full-time job and then by 1960 there were eight corporations in the u.s who had full-time psychiatrists on staff and another 200 with part-time psychiatrists on staff Wow! so what we had with psychiatry being co-opted by capitalist forces and used as a weapon waged against workers, with personality tests at the forefront, being used as a way to stop these so-called maladjusted workers from even getting their foot in the door and once in the door to try to control what jobs they had and who else they spoke to.
0: Yeah, this kind of reminds me of during the Bush administration where they used all these psychologists to basically justify torture, like at like Guantanamo Bay and stuff, where I'm just like, wow, like psychology can really be co-opted by some like, malicious fucking forces yeah
1: it reminds me too of like when uh people were trying to say that cigarettes and cigars weren't bad for you and they would be like these doctors smoke cigarettes right doctors and the doctors would be like yes we love cigarettes they're definitely not killing anybody <laughs> it's like all these things that are supposed to be helpful and good for people can be so easily like waged against us uh and in the workplace it became clear that these personality tests, like, didn't even have to be created with the workplace in mind for corporations to feel comfortable using them. Uh, do you remember the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, the MMPI? I know we talked about so many. <laughs> it's so hard to get so into. many
0: acronyms. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> so this was one that had been developed with the intention of being used for patients in mental hospitals to determine things like schizophrenia, and all of a sudden they were just throwing it in the workplace for job recruitments and job assignments. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now the personality test marketplace is currently still flooded with options. And a lot of these are oriented towards using it for like your job, it's for your career to try to hire people, place people, whatever. And just some of the ones that I saw currently still being used in hiring were the Enneagram, my spooky occult favorite, the 16 personalities test, the big five assessment, that's the one that came out in the eighties and nineties, the career profiles, which I had not even heard of, the workplace disc test, the high five test, the Hexaco model of personality structure, the revised NEO personality inventory, uh, and the Myers-Briggs type indicator that we talked about earlier, the MBTI, the Eisenach personality inventory, still the Minnesota multiphasic personality inventory that we just said was supposed to be determining like if schizophrenia was present in people who were hospitalized. The Berkman method, the values and motives inventory, the Hogan Personality Inventory, the California Psychological Inventory, the Personality Assessment Inventory, the Kersey Temperament Sorter, True Colors, the Caliper Profile, the Zondi Test, and like many more. So these are just all in the marketplace and being like actively promoted towards workplaces. The Myers-Briggs test alone is used by one in five Fortune 1000 companies to screen potential employees. And 89 of the top Fortune 100 companies use some sort of personality test. Hmm,
0: I wonder who they're filtering out.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so even like as a tool of oppression, the ultimate irony is that these personality tests proved to not even be effective at that. Uh, Remember the router personality inventory from 1931, which was the first one to do more complicated screenings, Mm -hmm. the one where I thought I would like it because I would know that I would score high in like neuroticism and like power or whatever or whatever. Okay, well, this test, often called the BPI, was super popular up to and during World War II. But repeating findings showed that the BPI was like really bad at predicting worker performance. Several studies reported little to no relation between personality scores on the BPI and work-related criteria for salesmen, grocers, cotton mill supervisors, whoever they could observe. Scores on the BPI were also found to be unrelated to measures of efficiency and only slightly related to work attitudes when studied in things like bankers. In regards to the use of the BPI and vocational training, like trying to match people with their ideal jobs, results were mixed at best and that's where they did the most, like good.
0: Yeah, it's it's wild to me how bad people are at predicting what other people will do. Like it's... I don't know why people still want to predict with such accuracy what will happen, because we as humanity have a bad record of predicting shit.
1: Yeah, we're not very good at it. People are fucking complicated, man. Yes, we are very complicated people. And a lot of these tests, even if they're complex and dynamic, they still focus on what people called maladaptive traits. So basically, even if the the test was presenting all end results as neutral, like how you were like, oh, there's no bad results, the people making them actually did, yes, make them with the subtext of a right and wrong answer in an effort to suss out neurotic tendencies. So while you would get a result at the end and they'd be like, that's fine, that's just the kind of person you are, it's okay, most of them would be the wrong type of personality, even in the minds of people who crafted these tests. So by 1944, analysts were combating the validity of the BP, saying, oh, the BPI, sorry, saying it appears that the type of personality test used is of little or no value as part of a battery of tests used in personnel selection, since it will predict neither success nor the attitudes of colleagues. Then we had that Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, the MMPI, which had been developed for use in psychiatric hospitals and was suddenly being used in workplaces. This thing started misidentifying everybody as addicts, abusers, or schizophrenics, like just, just in a normal workplace, which I like, how did they even use this? What do, what correlation does this have to working whatsoever?
0: Yeah, I could see like, okay, if you were going to interview at an engineering firm, and you took a test to make sure you knew how to do, um, I don't
1: know, basic algebra, Right, but that's not like a personality yeah, thing. Yeah, I'm like, that's why, like why do you test.
0: need like a personality test that has to do with anything with the job that you're supposed to do? Yeah,
1: I did apply for a city planning job in San Francisco when I lived there and there was a rigorous day of testing, but it was all technical skill testing. It was all like, can you use this computer application? Can you analyze this data? You know, things like that, which made sense for the job.
0: Yeah, like if you're like, do you know how to use an Excel spreadsheet? Like, right, because this job skills. requires that, but it's just like, who cares? if otherwise.
1: Yeah, and like even these tests being called out publicly pretty early on is like, hey, not effective at all. with What did you guys are trying to do? It didn't actually stop the spread of personality tests in the workplace. Instead, it just led employers to switch to other personality and test, tests instead, like the Hum-Wadsworth test of 1934, which we talked about, that was created after an employee working in a large company killed his supervisor. And this test was developed based on a theory of personality proposed by Dr. Aaron Rosanoff, who used psychiatric observations to hypothesize that personality could be categorized into four abnormal traits, antisocial, cyclothymic, AKA manic depressive or bipolar, autistic, and epileptic. So Rosanoff believed that so-called normal personalities had those four traits in varying degrees, but some people had them in stronger degrees, indicating potential for unrest in the workplace. And these tests ended up being super popular. They were aggressively marketed to businesses and sold extremely well. Articles written by its authors in personnel management journals, especially the personnel journal in particular, showcase the worth of this task in allowing hiring managers to pick the right person for the job wanted, to fit employees to different types of tasks, and to consult um, like in personnel aids when people had already been hired. So marketing efforts claimed that these tasks would provide a knowledge of temperament that would predict behavior and often would forestall undesirable behavior through an understanding of unfortunate tendencies, uh, which also just sounds like we're pseudoscience mumbo jumbo. Like, what does that even mean? But basically, they were just saying, hey, bosses, we will let you know who the pain in the ass crazies are. And this was the one uh, I think that was developed also with the expressed goal of just selling tasks. By 1942, over 2 million workers within 225 corporations had completed the test and companies reported being really happy with them. However, several experts questioned the validity of the theory and the efficacy at all. By 1949, Eisneck had commented that the theory on which it is based is not widely held among psychiatrists or psychologists. And there appears to be little evidence in its favor. So while companies were reporting that they liked them, there was actually no evidence that they were doing anything. And some tests did have marginal success at doing certain things. For example, the 16 personalities test was found to adequately predict grades in math for students. Hmm. Or it was found to adequately predict the ratings of performance for police officers, but only police officers. Hmm. And it was found to be unsuccessful at just about anything else. Big five personality testing Uh, That was the one that kind of came out in the 80s and 90s at the resurgence of personality testing that was supposed to be like, no, 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 we've really got it down this time, guys. This is how it works. That was found to be able to reflect the best correlation to job performance we've seen in a personality test, although it still included that whole neuroticism thing. And that has led to it being less effective due to its tendency towards blanket concepts of maladjusted behavior, which are not actually predictors of much. For example, I would consistently fall under neurotic on a personality test like this, And I also do, yes, love things like labor rights and unions. But anywhere I've worked, I've been in the top, like, performing category of all employees in terms of productivity, efficiency. And I would say at work, I actually have a pretty, like, nice and non-confrontational, like, disposition with my supervisors and coworkers. But I would fail this test 100% of the time because I would rank high under neuroticism, There's apparently a new type of personality test also that came out, which is based on this big five thing uh, in which groups of people are kind of thought to come about in four clusters, which are called average reserved self-centered and role model. But this still relies on the concept of maladjusted neuroticism. The role model cluster, for example, is people who rank low in neuroticism and high in all other traits. And this test was purported to be conducted by actual scientists like Louis Amaral, a professor of chemical and biomolecular engineering at the McCormick School of Engineering at Northwestern University, and William Rebell, a professor of psychology in the Weinberg College of Arts and Science. This test at least acknowledges though that people's personality types often change as they mature. Uh, And the group kind of thing, the grouping where people go in, it also acknowledges that that's not like so cut and dry. But then there's also like not very many potential uses for this test at all. Afterwards, So they're kind of like, yeah, we did this. It turns out sometimes people will be clustered into these groups together, but it's not super accurate. It's not all the time. There are tendencies, but nobody can prove anything. And we genuinely don't know why this would be useful.
0: Yeah, then why do it?
1: Yeah. Um, And basically all of these scientists kind of agree that these tests aren't super great for a couple of reasons. So one reason is that deception is possible. Just like you were looking at the test and it was like, well, will you steal a pen? And you're like, fuck yeah, I'll steal a pen. And you're like, no, never, I would never steal a pen, right? (laughs) If you know what a prospective employer is looking for, it's pretty easy to just lie on the test to make yourself look better adjusted than you might actually be, or at the very least more in line with what someone is screening for. Another reason is that you need to have like introspection for a lot of these. Remember that whole narrator bias thing? Well, it's sometimes pretty hard to know enough about yourself to answer correctly. Even if you wanted to try data shows that people tend to overestimate certain tendencies, especially ones that are viewed as socially desirable while underestimating other characteristics, director of the personality and self-knowledge lab at the university of California, uh, Samin Vazir told the Atlantic in 2017, that the only thing a personality test can tell you is what you already know
0: yeah or what you think you know or what you think you know yeah like i'm like do you know it's like my fear where i'm like the sixth sense where it's like wait everyone else aren't the asshole i'm the asshole oh i see assholes (laughs) see assholes everywhere but really i am the asshole
1: I don't think you're the asshole. (gasps) Thank you. Um, Another reason is that the test can just be really long and people get to a point where they're bored and just want it to be over. So they're like, whatever, man, just get me through this test. There's also this whole issue where scoring can be super subjective. Like what's desirable is a trait to some people, maybe undesirable to another. I think if we were to administer personality tests like this at our work, uh, I don't, I don't know if any of us would fall into the positive range. I was thinking about this and I thought maybe Lizzie, Lizzie might come maybe. out like a good hire. I'm like,
0: I, I, it's, it's weird. Cause I think that we're all kind of goth, Yeah, but we're all maladaptive. Like I, maladjusted. Okay, I feel like I am like goth on the inside, um, but not goth on the outside. So what comes across to other people might not be how I feel inside.
1: Yeah, I think like the thing is, we are all, we all like came to work here from having bad work experiences other places, right? So clearly, we, other people, other workplaces would not be suitable for us, but altogether, we actually are great workers and do really well at our job. Yeah. And it's just too subjective. Freaks. Yeah, like we're a bunch of freaks <laughs> and we're all together, man. So it's like, what, what's undesirable to somebody
0: is super desirable in my workplace. Even though I feel like I've always been a good worker. It's just people think I'm weird, but I'm like, I get the job done.
1: Yeah, I think most of us here at our work, people would think are weird or were like somebody who got in fights with like everybody. Or I know somebody at our work's been fired from every job they've ever had, but they worked for us for years. And I'm like, I don't really know. How you can quantifiably take one test that says that this person is a good fit for all employers? I mean,
0: I feel like I will. I am a good worker at any place, but then in certain places inside, I am crying and dying.
1: Yeah, um, this one actually kind of ties in back with the deception as possible too. But I've seen TikToks where people apply to work at a place like Target, and then they'll complete like the personality test of the application. And you're looking at their TikToks, they're like perfectly delightful people. You're like, you would be great at Target. You would be amazing. You're coming across fine. There's nothing that somebody in Target who interacted with you for 12 minutes total at maximum would be upset by. But they fail the application instantly. Like right when they submit it, it's like, sorry, no positions are open for you. And then this one person Got this instant rejection notice that just googled like the right answers for the personality test then retook the test filling in all of those answers and they got like called back the next day for an interview yeah so it's just weird because you're like the things that seem like they should be totally fine to some people you're like no that's that's a deal breaker but it's stuff you would never guess because it's not actually objectively bad there's no like objective bad yeah
0: also like You answering questions on a piece of paper has nothing to do with what is, like, actually going to happen in real life.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, There's also this whole issue with these tests where, like, results can be super inconsistent. Like, data shows tests often don't measure what they claim to measure. And oftentimes, due to narrator bias and other things we've mentioned, one person may take the test totally differently on the same day. Like, you could take the test twice and get two totally different results. And researchers have found that over half of personality test takers get different answers the second time they take the test, even within a range of just five weeks. And that's because our personality traits and states of mind shift throughout, not just the month, but even the day. Oh my gosh, this
0: that's like me. Uh, If I don't eat, I get so like crabby. It's like a next level hangry because I also have hypoglycemia. It's like next level. But I was reading somewhere that parole boards or are more likely to um grant people parole um can i guess
1: i would guess in the morning uh i believe it is right after lunch because
0: they're not hungry
1: yes oh that makes sense i would think by the end of the day they just want to go home and they're like i think there was hmm." like a
0: sweet spot like right in the morning it was basically like when they were not hungry or tired you would get parole wow see humans are just like we're, we're
1: fucked up. We're biased. We're flawed creatures moving through the world. We just gotta
0: make sure everyone is hydrated and they get their snacks. And they have friends they can call so they're not sad and lonely. Yeah. It's like, it's so wild how we just, you know how like when a little kid is tired, like a lot of like parents will be like, you gotta do this thing. You gotta make sure they're watered. Do they, do they got water? Do they gotta pee? Do they got food? Like, you yeah. gotta go
1: through all the things. We've never evolved out of that state. So where Catherine Briggs from the Meyer Briggs test had said, every one of us is born either an extrovert or an introvert and remains extrovert or introvert to the end of his days. Uh, Psychiatrists actually say that our personalities are nowhere near that innate. And like for being introverted or extroverted, for example, most people are introverted sometimes and extroverted sometimes. Like I would think of myself as a very extroverted person, but there are times where I'm like, I can't do it. Like I just need me time, I need to recover and I won't leave my house for three days. And that's really normal. Like we might have tendencies here and there, but none of us is that like hard line, this is who you are. Yeah, I mean, I have those same moments too. Yeah, we also have this whole reason these tests aren't super great, which kind of ties into that, which is that the answers just don't allow for nuance like at all. So these answers are typically a binary yes or no, agree or disagree, always or never. And the nature of that means that there's no opportunity for, well, maybe sometimes. For example, when I've taken tests, questions have asked things like, my community needs me. And the answer is technically yes, because like I'm the person at work with the passcodes to the bank accounts, which I should really find a way to safely write that down somewhere in case anybody else needs. (laughs) But it's not because I myself am special and there's no way to answer that on a binary test. Well, logistically, yes, but like, because I think I'm super special. No.
0: Yeah. Well, it's like people who do polling know that the way that you ask the question can produce very different results. Yes. Oh, no, you go. Oh, no. I I remember like in journalism class, like even like, I think, you know, this was like George Bush where they're like, do you think America is a free country? or do you think America is free? Literally people will answer based on just switching those words around. Interesting. Yeah, they'll answer differently because they're like, what does that mean? And also some person's like, this is a stupid, I I don't know why I thought of this example, probably just because of the era. It's because, well, what does free mean? Right. Free free could mean like, well, I can say anything I want and not get arrested or someone would be like, well, I'm not free because I, have to buy stuff so nothing is free <laughs> you know what i mean like yeah. the way you phrase a question is very important
1: i think that's really interesting yeah because there's like my issue i think with taking any tests in general is just yes and i'm like well under what circumstances well how well if this one special thing and it's like yeah these tests our brains are complex and we're like we're constantly running multiple scenarios at all times so mm-hmm. how can you expect us to like simplify our notional thoughts into like one single sentence that can be answered with like a yes or no question And even data from the Myers-Briggs test itself shows that most people aren't just like one thing or another. They're in the middle for any one category because they're asking multiple questions pertaining to each category and you're answering a little different every time. And that probably has to do with like the nuance of the circumstance or like how you're interpreting it in your head when you're reading the question. And all of this just leads to why these tests aren't that accurate. They aren't made with scientific methods. Most personality tests start with the personality type results, whatever the author thinks they perceive in the world to be the types of people they know. And then it just works backwards from there, which is kind of the opposite of the scientific method, right? You're not supposed to start out with the answer, then structure all of your testing to prove it right. You're supposed to start with a hypothesis, then test to see if it's right. And there are legitimate personality researchers out there, but they will tell you that there are no set personality types. Of the Myers-Briggs test, Adam Grant, an organizational psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania, says there's just no evidence behind it. The characteristics measured by the test have almost no predictive power on how happy you'll be in a situation, how you'll perform at your job, or how happy you'll be in your marriage. And he's right. Several different studies have shown the test is completely ineffective at predicting people's success in various jobs, and about half of the people who take it, yes, do get different results if they take it a second time. Not to mention a lot of these tests were made by racist eugenicists like Isabel Briggs and based on creepy, strange pseudoscience like phrenology with weird ideas of gender roles thrown in the mix, which probably explains why the original personality test, the Woodworth one, gives the average person today a totally different score than the average person in 1930 or 1917. Society has changed and our ideas of gender and what is normal and what is abnormal have changed along with it. In general, it stands that people are far too complicated to be reduced to a few letters on a page. In 1950, Theodore Adorno said, the desire to construct types was itself indicative of the potentially fascist character. He then, in humor, made his own personality tests specifically to determine potential fascists. And maybe Adorno is right. To scrape our humanity down to a core value of usefulness or uselessness, to strength or weakness, feels like an effort to strip our humanity away from us completely. One user in the subreddit for the MBTI wrote, honestly, I'm considering leaving it all behind. MBTI, cognitive functions, typology, they fuck with your brain and your perceptions of other people as if you're a machine and not a human being. We like these tests because we fall prey to this thing called the Barnum effect. We're gullible when reading descriptions of ourselves. We like reading our horoscopes and our personality test results because we assume we are unique and different, even though these are generic descriptions being given to many people. And ironically, we are far more unique than these descriptions could possibly ever account for. As Carl Jung explained when developing his four personality types, every individual is an exception to the rule. And when companies use these tests to hire these people are controlling our incomes and our livelihoods based on inaccurate pseudoscience often designed in part to root out people who would be most comfortable speaking up for their rights and the rights of their coworkers. While figuring out what type of bread we are is harmless fun, figuring out our MBTI in a workplace scenario is a way for people above us to exercise control, stripping us, yes, of our humanity, but also assigning us random traits we may or may not even have as a way to grade and judge us for things we may or may not even do. The whole thing is very dystopian and it reminds me a bit of gattaca or minority report oh my god which we talk about all the time we're not good as a species at predicting human behavior and we need to stop leveraging these personality tests as though they hold truth they're fun sure but at the end of the day the mbti or the enneagram is better suited as a buzzfeed quiz right along next to which kardashian you are and what color you should paint your toenails today
0: um it should be Kim and Sparkly Cerulean Blue.
1: Oh, I love that. Okay, so Kenna, what do you think about all of this? I know you wanted to do this episode, so I hope I did it justice. Did oh I miss my anything? God, what do you think?
0: I just I also think about these tests as like just to add like very, very ableist. Yeah. Like if you think in a different way, um, you are going to answer these tests differently. So they're I think they're weeding especially, I think I've seen online, like, weed out people who are on the spectrum, weed out people who have, um, like, depression, which to me is like, like, wow, you're, you're gonna, like, discriminate against someone for something that has nothing to do with the workplace. I mean, whatever, I mean, regardless of how someone is or is not in the workplace, like, it's like, people need resources. And, you know, I I wish we didn't have to have jobs to have those.
1: Right. That's the thing I think about too. It's like, okay, ideally in a perfect world, like everyone would have their basic needs met. And then if you were at work and you were like, this person's kind of a dick, you could be like, fuck it, fire them. Don't bring them around here. But then you get into this whole other thing where you're like this person's kind of a dick, but they need a job. They need shelter. They need food. Like they still deserve those things. And at a certain point you're like, Yeah, like them being an asshole or not being nice to be around or even not being nice to me is not a reason for them to not be able to get the resources they need to live. And that's like a weird position to put people in. And that's what capitalism does. It makes us forced to be in those decision making processes about our workplaces and our colleagues and our peers, where you suddenly can't just have like a value assessment of a person based on your interactions with them. You have to have that assessment and then compare it to how much of a right you think they have to live
0: yeah because there's no social safety net because there's no safety if there net. was a so if there was a social safety net yeah you would just be like yeah this person isn't good for this thing that we must get done you know this person is not good for this water waste treatment plant like, <laughs> right you know but you know i think you know just the way also okay th- you know what this makes me think of like all these like. All these personality test things are like personnel and someone's job is to figure out. Like imagine being in a huge corporation and your job is being in HR administering these personality tests. That seems like a stupid job to me. And it seems like a grifty style situation where all these companies are trying to get their money from another corporation. And it's just creating all these like these other jobs in the widget factory that are just like. And I'm like, wait, is that just what we do? We just create all these jobs that really don't serve any purpose in the sense of like expanding um, how the happiness of people or like productivity, you know, productivity that actually helps people, not just creates more shit that just makes people's lives better where I'm just like, is it just because we because there is no safety net, you just have to create more
1: and more rando jobs? Yeah, like rando useless stuff. Like that's actually a byproduct of capitalism. Like it's extremely inefficient
0: you know yeah where it's just like well i you know if you know in a, the, the utopia where we don't have we don't have to work all these jobs or like you only have like um you know uh golly gee, like golly gee like where um you what am I, I totally lost my train of thought <laughs>
1: No, that's okay. That's allowed. um, That would not be allowed in corporate America. Oh, I was thinking like,
0: (laughs) you know, some sci-fi thing where it's just like, you probably need very few people to actually do the jobs that need to be done. And I think of like roads, um, water treatment plants, uh, picking up trash, stuff like that. Shelter,
1: food. Yeah.
0: Honestly, a lot of that with technology, we're probably in the future will require fewer and fewer people, though. P- people do need to, you know, do right. these jobs. It's not AI and,
1: robot takeover.
0: Yeah. And it's, there's nothing wrong with having a job where you pick up trash, you know, yes. pick up trash or do cleaning. Cause that's like, that helps everybody. Right. But I'm just thinking like in the future, probably there will be technology that just makes things simpler where you don't need as many people doing a job. Or if you're going towards a post growth economy, um, which I saw a TikTok about oh, where it's cool. like. Because, you know, if we're thinking about the environment, we just can't keep growing and growing and growing because we run out of resources. So to me, that means less and less people working. Right. Um, and then I think that fucks our culture up, like, in this way, because people are like, well, what do I do if I'm not tied to work? And then my personality isn't tied to work. And it's just like. I don't know. It creates all these things, but to me, I'm I'm going on a tangent here.
1: No, I actually get it. I think it makes sense because it reminds me of our last episode when we were talking about universal healthcare and how, like, how your mom was like, "What about the insurance workers?" And then it's like, "What about the coal miners?" And you're like, "We don't need these jobs," but we've created a society where people need to have jobs in order just to survive, and then we have all this weird guilt where we can't do away with these superfluous weird industries. That actually aren't helping people and are hurting people is yeah. we're like trading the harm. It's like, what if we stop harming these people, we'll harm the people who do the jobs that harm those people. Yeah, <laughs> like you it's know? like with like the personality test things. I'm like, wow, this is a huge. Like if targets using this sh- shit, that is a huge fucking industry that makes absolutely no fucking sense. Yeah, it's a grip. It's a huge grip. I actually was thinking about okay, the thing you said about like oh, picking up trash like isn't a bad job. Like that's a job that people need. Um, did you, have you seen any of the Grimes TikTok? I was just thinking about this. About the picking strawberries? Yeah. And I'm like, um, actually people pick
0: strawberries because the human hands are actually better than machines. And also like, just, it's not inherently a bad job. No, it's you just can the, make it a good job. <laughs> if you got paid enough to do it. It would be a good job. It would be a good, any job. If you are paid enough and treated with respect and dignity, is a good job. Yeah,
1: I'm like imagine thinking that like the people who are responsible for putting food on our table, our subway, like that's the yeah, worst thing in the world. Like I
0: remember do. seeing like a some TikTok video was mentioning comment be like, oh yeah, I think like I would like picking strawberries would be a fun job if it paid enough and like
1: if I could live off of it and, and you, and you if know it some was really hot I didn't have to suffer in the sun. Yeah, it's like yeah,
0: they're like people just think that jobs are cool or uncool. I'm using air quotes. Yeah. In this you know in this you know i'm like in this, this weird girl boss society yeah
1: it is weird girl boss society another thing i think about too is the other example she gave was like janitors she's like nobody wants to be a janitor and i was thinking about lola so lola is somebody i used to work with um like years ago and she was a cleaner at our workplace and i was talking to her one day and she's like oh yeah like i moved here from mexico and i clean and i was like oh what job did you do in mexico and she's like oh, i was a lawyer And I was like, what? She's like, yeah, I moved from Mexico to LA to be with some man. And, you know, then I had a family and I thought I would be a lawyer again. Like I'd go to school and get my law degree here. But it turns out I actually just really like being a cleaner. I like cleaning and it's not as many hours and I get to spend time with my family. And, you know, so all these people who were like, nobody would want to be a cleaner. I'm like, I know lots of people who actually really find it satisfying to clean. That's the thing. It's it's like they have, should be paid well. They okay. should be paid like a lawyer. Like, yeah, I, it's important. Pay them well. I feel like it's weird because I feel like people
0: will play a video game where they are cleaning up something or they are like picking fruit. Yeah. But they like and so like maybe in real life they'd just be like la la la. Like I've had jobs where I did data entry.
1: Oh, I would love to.
0: That was my <laughs> dream job is data entry. Honestly, I love it. It was sometimes so satisfying because I would just put on my headphones, like listen to music or a podcast. And it was like knitting. Yeah, I was meditative. And I was like, I'm just putting all this data into these spreadsheets. And or like, same with like doing shipping stuff. Like sometimes it was just like, you just get in like a weird zone. What do they call it when you like are working and you focus really hard. It's called something. Oh, I
1: don't know. But I will say that on like days at the office where it'd be like all hands on deck and we all had to ship orders, I feel like we would all get so into it. You know, the people who shipped every day were like, yeah, we're shipping orders. And the people like, who usually did, like, computer work, we'd be like, ooh, exciting. Yeah, I remember, okay,
0: like, I, as a teenager, had a job making cotton candy, and it was mostly very brutal, boring work in the hot fucking Colorado sun. But sometimes I would just get so into making the cotton candy. Yeah, it was, like, Proustian. I was like, I could write a fucking 100-page book on, like, doing the cotton candy machines and the way it smells, and it was, like... I don't know. This is also pre-social media. So like, I feel like those were the days when you're on the job. You, I thank goodness I have an imagination.
1: Oh yeah. I would end up just like keeping tally marks of the minutes and I'd divide all the minutes mathematically and be like, okay, if I've done this many, I only have to do this 18 more times. And then this happens with these minutes. That would be like me trying to get through a boring job. But no, I think the point of it is like, you're right. Like the system we're in, we have to create all these bullshit things to support other bullshit things. And that's the reason why people won't just do logical, logical like solutions to problems and say like, oh, these personality tests, they're not actually helping anybody and we don't need them and just do away with it. Cause there's always gonna be somebody who's like, well, what about the poor HR managers who have to administer the personality tests? Like, what about them? Don't they need a job? And it does like you were saying, all tie into like the social safety net thing. And it's a bummer cause it's that kind of, st- thinking where it's like, well, we can never change anything. then.
0: Yeah. But where you're just like, okay, well, what if everybody, um, like just helped each other out and we had like a big social safety net and all our work weeks went down to like eight hours,
1: right? And we did away with the unproductive labor of like the marketing, the money management, those things go into a business and take up so much work, but they don't actually contribute to the productivity of the business. They, they only contribute to the survival of the business under capitalism. Like, trying to market your products best to beat out all of your competitors. Like that only matters if you are so worried about getting money in the door that you're afraid you can't afford to feed everybody or you can't, you know, like continue to buy inventory or all these things. And you start to think about all the work where you're like, well, marketing, marketing and PR, like the thing with the cigarettes and the PR, you're like, does that actually contribute to anybody's quality of life? If you take away the fact that it it is just there to support the people who make the things or do the services that do contribute. And honestly,
0: it would clear up so much mental space, like for so many people, for me personally, you know, where it's just like, damn, this is, I think that just the personality test is just the symptom of the bullshit jobs. Yeah, yeah, it is. And it's, I hate that we have to have the bullshit jobs because people need food and shelter. Right, right. Like, but if you were just like, okay, let switch this around everyone has a right to food shelter health care not just the basics but has the right to a good life to a good life not yes. just like survival like good life and then we work from there to make things good life to great life or just good life
1: right yeah it's like the the it's so funny that these tests are supposed to be made to suss out the people who are going to be the most efficient in the workplace and you look at them and you're like the existence of the test is symbolic of an inefficiency in the workplace. (laughs) Um,
0: One thing this also never questions is it never tries. I I think it's actually really funny. These personality tests when they're not measuring like how good of a person is or if it's good for society or if it's moral or ethical, like for some reason, it's so funny to me how that that is not a big part of like, business or which you spend most of your time at or like if you're because I feel like okay these tests to me make it seem that the workplace is like a mini society and you're trying to suss out who is going to be the best for this mini society but it doesn't take into account any sort of morality or whatever that's just like who will work the job in this you know right who will make the most profit
1: that's actually really really interesting because when I was doing this research You know, my Myers-Briggs, I think was ENTJ. And um, I saw this article this woman had written who's also an ENTJ. And she said that when she got hired, the hiring manager was like, I'm an ENTJ too. We have a lot to talk about. We have the CEO personality type. But when I read those tests, I'm like, this test just called me a bitch. So the CEOs are the bitches. They're the assholes. They're the ones who are the least moral. They're the ones who are the most like me. What can I do? You know what I mean? On one hand, there
0: is nothing wrong with someone who is like, more hyper and then someone who's more like chill like that's right. just people have you know whatever some people have hyper moments chill moments that's not a judgment call but sometimes it is a judgment call to be like wow that person is mean to other people and bullies other people and makes them feel bad
1: right or always has to be the boss or always has to be in charge and it's like when I read those I'm like wow there are things about my personality I prefer not to have these kind of dominant but aspects sometimes but
0: it's like it, they never phrase them that way there's never a personality test to be like, oh, well, maybe treating your friend this way, like maybe uh, texting behind your friend's back that they're a bitch is bad. <laughs> yeah. Like there's never like these like moral questions. It's, it's always these like amorphous, like are, yeah. you a, are you a tiger? Are you a
1: penguin? But I think that's, I think the tiger thing, they want you to be amoral because that's how you yeah. to do cutthroat shitty things that support the company. And it kind of goes into that thing where it's like the American CEO mentality is like, the what the uh, the american psycho kind of mentality you know (laughs) where you're like fuck you i do what i want you know and then it's like wow what a powerful leader and it's like of course like corporate america doesn't test for your morality they want you to be amoral in support of the business also
0: okay i'm just gonna say this that personality has like sometimes like nothing to do with how successful someone is in the workplace yeah like because okay i think about like when i was working retail. All my other coworkers were like you're weird, you're weird to the customers and like people don't like that and you're like I was either too nice or not nice everything whatever. But then I looked and but like all the other salesmen were like the typical salesman like very like oh, I hey. hate that, I hate that. And they <laughs> were like but then I looked I made the most sales. Yeah, I I made the most sales even taking into account i didn't even work weekends which are should be the busiest time right so i have worked you know how there's like sometimes some person in the office who might be like grouchy or crabby but if shit hits the fan they're like okay i have all the like for example i have all the passwords i know exactly who to call i know exactly what to do but they're not the most pleasant to be around right but they get everything done and you're like thank god uh you know grumpy chad was here so we knew how to call the plumber right you
1: know? no that's but like show. if you
0: took a personality test it'd be like this guy is too grumpy but he's good at his fucking job
1: right i think about that a lot i think about that it's like the thing with emotional labor i think about that in the workplace too it's like okay you should try to be nice and chill to people but sometimes people aren't always the best to be around and yeah they still deserve a life <laughs> yeah or just
0: like also, I've worked with people who at work just seem so mean to me. Uh-huh. I don't know, you know, to me, I'm like, oh, oh, yeah. but then outside of work, they're super happy. And they yeah. just, like, just fucking hate their job.
1: Right, right. It's Yeah, there's so much going into that we can't control. That's so. why I'm
0: just like, it's so fucking complicated that these tests cannot predict no. anything.
1: So what's our general consensus on personality tests? I think fun to take, but don't give them to the bosses. Yeah. Right? No. Yeah. Anything else? Is that our final thought?
0: Um, Buzzfeed quizzes are fun.
1: Yeah, that's the most millennial thing about me, and I won't apologize for it. I like a Buzzfeed quiz. We're chuggy. We're we'll, oh <laughs> saying chuggy is chuggy. It is, I don't want to. I take that back. <laughs> okay, don't take them. That's the episode. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Pick Me Up. I'm scared. You can find us on Patreon if you would like. Patreon.com/slash Pick Me Up. I'm scared. For $2 a month, you can be our patron. We will upload bonus episodes. There's some cute little merchy things, I think. And there is a link to a place where you can leave us voice messages that we may play in a future episode. And if you don't want to give us your $2, that is totally fine. We're just happy you're here.